Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Um, so Rowan Reed, as I said earlier, is a forest scientist and an expert on agroforestry, trees on farms and farm forestry. Um, and his book Heartwood uh, was published by Melbourne Books in August um, earlier this year. And he joins us in the studio to tell us a bit about us, um, about it. So um, welcome to the studio. Um, first of all, can you tell us what agroforestry is? Well, it's, um, I suppose it's better to talk about where I've come from in yeah. the context of how I've ended up in this field. Absolutely. Uh, you know that forestry is a very contentious field. It's easily polarised. There's either conservation or profit motives uh, behind most of them. The people involved in, in managing these forests are generally governments, as we've seen in the public land in Victoria, or they're corporations managing larger plantations or MIS schemes and stuff like that. Uh, this is not a short history. This, is, this goes back to the way forestry has been run for 50 years. And as you said, I'm a forest scientist. And it might surprise people to know you actually go to university to learn this. And I uh, spent a long time at uni and worked 20 years as an academic there. But even as a 24-year-old... Um, I knew that I didn't want to participate in conventional forestry the way it was. Uh, not because there's anything wrong with native forest logging, and that might surprise some people. It's just that the debate was so polarised that there was no science and no passion involved in understanding how to manage these forests better. And for me, the biggest environmental issue is not at the blockade in the forest, it's actually at the farm gate. Mm. 60% of our Australian landscape has been highly degraded or changed to develop it for agriculture. That landscape needs forests, so I've decided to be a forester amongst farmers. So for me, agroforestry, uh, the discipline I've been working on for 30 years, is really just about farmers making decisions about growing trees for whatever purpose they want. Fantastic. So um, so it's it's, it's just a different model for forestry entirely. And... um, because it's forestry that's based on the lands that farmers hold, mm. and this they, they hold this land across generations. They've got uh, sort of business needs as well. What are the major, <clears throat> sorry, the major conservation differences um, between that kind of forestry, agroforestry, mm. and um, commercial forestry? Well, there there is no model, and that's the way I really like working with farmers. Mm. I start by asking them. Um, you know, why would you want to grow trees in this farm? Mm. And you would have heard in almost all social reports on, on farming that farmers would li- like to leave the farm in a better state for their next generation than they inherited it. And in my mind, there is no question that trees have a role to play in that and that that definition of what a better state is not only includes economic viability but also resilience with climate change, uh, building biodiversity, protecting soil and water. So the environmental issues that farmers are looking at are inherently embedded in the context of making the farm viable economically. And that's why I like working with them with forests, because we can 
make forests that not only deliver conservation benefits but also enhance and improve the capital value of the property and allow you to, to harvest timber. And I've, I've chosen to work on timber particularly because it's very controversial. But if I give you an example, our own Bamberg Forestry Farm down the Otways, Claire and I bought it in 1987. It had a degraded creek running through the middle. The cows were shitting in the watercourse and stuff. And uh, so we fenced out the creek, planted trees. Now, that's nothing unusual about that. But right from the start, we decided we would manage those trees for furniture-grade timbers. And now we're harvesting logs from the riparian strip and enhancing that ecologically at the same time we cut down a tree half the tree stays in the watercourse to improve the flow of the water and create a series of pools and the other half is being used for fine quality furniture timber i see no conflict between conservation and profit which is why the book's titled you know how to grow trees for conservation and profit because if we can get these two things working together rather than in opposition we'll have a much more viable and resilient landscape as a result so it sounds like um, that you, you'll then, as a result, be able to grow a more diverse um, sort of crop of trees. Mm. Like, can, can you tell us a bit about that? The, the well, sort of, yeah. I'll just think we, if, you, if you take yourself away from the confines of, of forestry being commercially viable for the source of income, yeah. in which case in Australia we've got about three or four different species that, yeah. that you could say I could plant now, get a return that would pay for the cost of the land and the time. Sure. We've actually got um, 600 native, beautiful native timber species. I also grow a lot of exotics, American black walnut and some of these highly prized uh, exotic trees. And we've got a suite, and I call it the sort of the palette of timbers that we can grow. And we've also got this range of canvases we're working on. The, what I like is actually working with farmers and say, well, how can we use this suite of paints on the, your particular canvas and d- develop something quite unique in that landscape? Uh, does it matter which tree you're growing? Uh, you said you've got a hmm. big range of trees in terms of promoting that um, resilience and biodiversity that you're talking about. Like if you were to grow all yeah. American blackwood, hmm. is that going to create a, a, a sustainable biodiverse environment uh, in the long term? There is a, and I think that's another misconception, yep. the feeling that uh, or only local ind- indigenous species will su- support biodiversity. One of the Australian natives we grow is an exotic to Victoria. It's the silky oak. comes from New South Wales. I grow it because climate change has led to, a, a, I believe, a significant stress in our landscape, increased transpiration rates and putting a lot of drought stress on our indigenous plants. I grow that because I think it's much more viable and drought resistant mm-hmm. in terms of surviving a 30 or 40 year growth period. But I've found that that particular species is being farmed by our sugar gliders now, and we've got a much higher population of sugar gliders on the farm because I've introduced a species that produces a sap during winter that they can farm, which is more productive than the local alternative, which was the black wattle. So the introduction of an exotic to the landscape, it, it all depends how you do it. Of course, if I plant the whole farm to one species, I'm yep. losing biodiversity, but there's no reason we can't add biodiversity with this. By the same token, if you know, introduce species, our boobook owl spends the whole winter in our coast redwoods because it's a very cool, uh, very warm environment in the dense canopy of the coast redwoods, and I can't find them in the no- local species to overwinter. It... it has a preference it doesn't choose as long as you have diversity in the landscape mm. and there's great potential to to use some of these introduced species as tools particularly in soil repair i mentioned the coast redwoods it's the only species i found that could control tunnel erosion on sodic soils trolled a range of different native species 
but it's actually it's a physical and chemical function that trees have having. So I plant it for conservation. Ultimately, it'll be juicing durable timbers as well so it's getting the match right and not being too fast just like in gardening we don't rely just on indigenous we use a full suite of things being careful not to introduce weeds or or tip it over in some in some fashion to to a lesser state so in encouraging um farmers to um to plant trees on their property Mm. um for profit as you say um it's actually a way of uh, sort of rehabituating that land to the use of wild wild animals as well. Yeah. It's, it's land that's been sort of tilled for 150 years or so. Um, you've got trees on there and wild animals are able to move in there. Um, what other... Um, so we've been talking about the way that the soil has been um, re- reconditioned, I suppose? With the, well, you with just... All these things, both degradation and regeneration, mm. are natural processes. Yep. Building up carbon in the soil or erosion along the creek. There's nothing unnatural about these, but mm. we've gone to a situation where the degradation processes are running faster than the regeneration processes, both of soil and water quality and stuff like that. So what we're doing with the trees, we're using them to harness some of those natural processes and swing it in a positive direction so that we can actually build up diversity and resilience in the landscape, hold soil for longer, build up carbon in the landscape, not just the soil. And then because we're we're, we're humans living and working on the landscape at a carrying capacity much higher than the Indigenous landscape would, would, would have ever carried in terms of people, both in our, our economic requirements and the number of us, we also need those trees to deliver an economic and social benefit to us. Mm. And that means it won't look like an Indigenous native forest because the, the carrying capacity of that in our modern eco- economy is not great enough. We need to, if we want to shift the landscape over to a more progressive and more resilient form, we need to look at, look at uh, systems that actually deliver economic returns as well. Uh, it could be as simple as uh, for the other day I, I went to my neighbour's place and I felled uh, six sugar gum trees. And every year I go down there and pull those sugar gum trees over. They planted in a shelter belt and those trees then provide their year's wood supply. On a very small scale, integrating trees into the farm has actually met their energy needs. At a larger scale, we're harvesting timber from our riparian strip, as I said. Those logs ended up in the, as veneer in the Australian tax office in Dandenong, just up the road. So we can actually deliver an economy that's on-farm, but mm. also in community and then on through into the conventional markets. And that's in contrast to sort of large commercial forests. We have monocultures, we have sort of a very concentrated um, system where the wood is grown and processed by the same people and yeah it's a different yeah, yeah the, the simplification of forestry mm. and and i suppose one thing that really frustrates farmers and if i talk to myself think of myself as a landholder and our yeah. family family's yeah. been involved for 150 years why would you plant a tree that takes or a forest that takes 30 years to grow knock it over and start again mm. in a landscape when you can actually use forestry and timber production as a way of lifting it to the next level as i harvest my eucalypts out of my out of our uh forests I'm actually transitioning it to a, a native subtropical rainforest of red cedar, blackwood, uh, she-oaks and other species. It will be a higher ecological state because of the way I've tr- done the natural process yeah, yeah. and take the timber out and, yep. and then lift it up. It'll also be less competitive, less of a fire risk and other things because it has less eucalypts in the system. Mm. So letting go, letting nature take a course, I really hate that comment because... They, they are natural processes, but they're, they're, they've stagnated and we need to get into our environment. We need to kickstart this natural process and that requires a chainsaw in many cases mm. and, and machinery 
and mm. there's nothing wrong with this. It's actually a tool that we can use like a spade in your garden to actually achieve some of these outcomes that we need in the broader landscape. It's farming. It, it, it's, it's exactly that. Yeah, but it's, it's actually more than that because yeah. you're now working out how to, to live often with the landscape mm. in a much more, a much more resilient way. Well, if that's, uh, that's something that you'd like to hear a bit more about, if you um, don't entirely understand what we've been talking about, <laughs> if you wanted to hear more, definitely turn up to the, um, to the Evening About Trees. Um, Rowan Reed will be speaking of that, along with the winner of the 2017 Nature Running Prize, Sophie Cunningham, and journalist Hamish Fitzsimmons, and they'll be talking about the future and history of trees. Uh, the event's this Thursday, the 23rd of November, at 6pm, and that's at 86 Burke Street. That's at the Hill of Content. Yes, I'll um, see so you there. Definitely, definitely turn up yeah. and do RSVP by calling nine double six two nine four seven two, or emailing Melbourne at Hill Content Bookshop, Hill of Content Bookshop dot <laughs> com. Um, Rowan Reed, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, and it's great to be back. I, I did some cleaning of studios in <laughs> 1983 at a different <sighs> location, three CR, when I was a student. So oh, it's beautiful. good to see it's still going. Welcome back, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Well, if you listen to three CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, I sure know where you are. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. We'll check out the happening vibe. We're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to 3CR, flap your ears. What? Who the hell is that? talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. Get out. Get the hell out of here now. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And up next we have Over the Wall, which is a look at barriers to social support and safety nets from the perspective of those most affected and the worker advocates who support them. Over the Wall finishes its reporting into the 2017 Senate Review Committee on Social Welfare and OCI Depths. Greens MP Adam Bant lets fly over what he thinks the Turnbull government is doing to standards of social welfare. The government has gutted Centrelink and has gutted staff and has cut, cut, cut. Former Treasurer Joe Hockey used to talk about lifters and leaners. Well, the level of Newstart, for example, is now so low that... It is a poverty trap, right? You spend people who are just relying on Newstart spend most of their time just trying to survive and doing doing whatever you have to do to make ends meet, and that doesn't leave extra money to go and engage in retraining to to increase the chances of getting a job or to go and get that haircut or buy that new, you know new jacket or whatever to go to the job interview, and even. Like the people across like the business council, for example, have come out and said actually we're the, 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 they call it a poverty trap and they say the level of new start is so low that we have to raise it. So there's an increasing chorus, including from some unexpected voices, saying we're not getting the balance right in Australia, but the government's not interested, this government's not interested. This seems to be a, a demonising of people on low income, like you know the terms that are used such as dull bludgers and... The negativity of even people who, how do people become homeless, you know, what have they done wrong, you know, um, and I don't like using the word wrong there because I think when we lose that 
heart about our social safety net. We lose our empathy not only for people in those situations. Yeah, I'm really worried Australia is becoming a meaner society, right, and that we're, um, because governments don't have the guts to stand up to big business, or in fact sometimes they're just in the pockets of big business, they, um, they won't do what's needed to raise the money to fund uh, a society that looks after everyone and that cares for everyone. And part of my fear is that from the government's perspective, this, this coalition government in particular, as they go further and further behind in the polls, that um, they're going to keep looking for groups between now and Election Day to demonise and to beat up on even more, and they'll keep finding new ways of making life tougher for uh, for drug testing, for example, for people who are on welfare. Uh, and I think it's all being driven by two things, by saving money so that they can give more in the form of corporate tax cuts, for example, to the top end of town, and also by trying to boost their electoral stocks by demonising a particular group of people. And I think the more we keep trying to draw from that well, the meaner a place Australia will become. Getting back to the, the Senate uh, Committee on, on Robo-Debt, uh, with reviews and appeal and, and tribunal options, can we expect any improvement in flexibility from the department and the government on these issues? Well, the, the government's putting on a brave face and saying there's no problem, uh, but I think they've understood that there, that there is. I mean, the, the message is starting to get through, for example, of even from people in their constituency of the waiting times that you know people are ringing up Centrelink. I think it's just it's kind of undeniable. Just that's just an example. What worries me is that I think from this government at the moment we might just see tinkering at the edges rather than a fundamental change. What could tinkering at the edges mean? Well, it might mean that the you know that the first letter they send out won't be one that mentions a debt collection agency and the like. Now, those things are good, but um, if the fundamental problem is that the government still going to come after people because they want to save money or boost their fortunes in the polls, then we've still got the same problem. One thing I've heard about the phone call times is that they've changed now a system where people will get answered by a a general operator but then transferred through to a second call, which can be a much longer wait. But once they've been taken by the first call, then that's the call time. There you go. At what point and by what means will we see a cost-benefit analysis that would show that the extra cost burdens to the department are way over budget in in the context of this OCI and and will this information ever see the light of day? Part of what we're trying to get out of the government um, through... Uh, through using our powers in the Senate to ask some questions and to grill the the government ministers at Senate estimates hearings over the coming months will be to get to the bottom of exactly what this is costing because we worry that the government actually may be spending... This may be costing the government a hell of a lot more than they're letting on. Um, So we'll be pushing for that and hopefully we won't have to wait until the budget in May next year. Over the last few weeks, we spoke to Josh Cullinan of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union about his role in helping impeach the 2014 Coles Workplace Agreement and about Queensland Coles worker Penny Vickers and her ongoing challenge to an earlier agreement. Just over a week ago, Penny Vickers officially withdrew her case before the Fair Work Commission, saying that she had negotiated with Coles that a new agreement be drawn up by the end of February. 2018. This agreement would, for the first time in years, bring all Coles workers up to parity with the relevant awards. 
including full penalties and extra leave provisions. This settlement, coming on the eve of the final hearings before the Commission, is a substantial victory for Coles workers will return tens of millions of dollars to their wage packets every year. Josh Cullinan, whilst welcoming the pay rises, regrets also that attempts to secure back pay have been ignored, among other things. We hope to talk to Josh in the coming months on Over the Wall about this, about his new union and about other campaigns. So stay tuned. Last week on Over the Wall we had a story about the outsourcing of government call centre Centrelink jobs to private corporation Serco, Serco who also currently runs more than half of Australia's immigration detention centre services. Let's jump back to that interview now for a couple more minutes just to hear about what the union are actually doing on their campaign site and also their concerns currently for workers who've been experiencing increased levels of violence when Centrelink staffing levels have been decreased over the past few years. The reports from our members is that client aggression has been increasing for some time. We know that one of the main triggers for uh, violence in Centrelink offices is financial stress and duress. So again, any measures that a government takes that uh, increase financial pressure on members of the community it's the frontline service delivery staff that bear the brunt of that in terms of increased client aggression and violence. And, uh, you know, the perception of members uh, on that front is that that problem is increasing. It's not getting any better. And final question, Centrelink staff are in threat of stringent consequences for breach of privacy. Uh, They sign contracts and, and they are not allowed to discuss their work conditions to media and also in, in social media con- uh, commentary. But what is the public service? I'm sorry. What is the community public sector union going to do, working together with other organisations to campaign for your staff and, and this issue? Look, we've been um, talking to a lot of our allies in the um, community sector. Uh, about the issues that their clients have and uh, the way that the lack of uh, funding and support that is available to staff impacts their clients. And we're going to continue working with those organisations to highlight the impact of inappropriate uh, inappropriate funding and indeed funding cuts um, because they're not... um, uh, they're not without consequence. So uh, it is always a case of um, highlighting and educating the community who get this. They understand the importance of these services um, and they support the uh, uh, government's role in, uh, in um, uh, the provision of these services wholeheartedly. So it's not a difficult conversation, but we're going to keep campaigning because... Um, you know, when the next federal election comes round, we certainly uh, want to see that the um, public services that are delivered in Australia are front and centre of uh, an ask for every government to support. And unfortunately, I think the Turnbull government's got an appalling legacy in this regard. Say it doesn't exist 
no one would like to admit that there is a city underground. People live every day off the waste and decay, off the disgust of their fellow man. Here in Sub City, life is hard. Sally Goldner is a familiar voice here on 3CR where she is the host of Out of the Pan, Sundays at 12pm, and we'll be putting links on our webpage, although really, if you're not listening to Out of the Pan, what are you doing? Um, Sundays at 12pm, and podcasting as well. And we have Sally on the show today as a representative of Transgender Victoria, a voluntary organisation of trans people and their families and friends. Welcome to Monday Breakfast, Sally. Good morning, gang. How are you? Good, good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, So uh, part of the reason why we have you on air today is because you're going to be speaking later today at the event Trans Day of Remembrance, Past, Present and Future. And we just thought we might um, talk a bit about what we can expect from from the event. So it's happening later today at 12.30. Is that right? Um, Yeah. uh, That's right. Yeah. yeah. So um, can you... Tell us a bit about the significance of the Trans Day of Remembrance, um, what what we're remembering. Yes, yeah, so Trans Day of Remembrance started in 1998 after the death of a trans woman, Rita Hester, and her friend, Gwendolyn Ann Smith, noted that there had been, sadly, um, transphobic murders. Um, sorry, I should have given a trigger warning there, a difficult topic. Um, but... Um, and if, if that is distressing, please call Switchboard or Drummond Street Services, two good counselling services. But, um, um, yeah, and so it's been running now. So, yeah, nearly this is the nearly the 20th time it's been noted. And it's expanded over the years a little to acknowledge not just um, outright transphobic murders, but people who have been lost to transphobia. So, therefore, sadly, people who perhaps can't come out and in distress um, self-harm and also just, um, you know, where perhaps mental health services aren't up, up to scratch. So that's sort of where the past is, I suppose, in terms of the event that's happening at lunchtime today where I'm having a chat to people in the Victorian public sector. That's right. Um, so people, talking to people in the Victorian public sector, we're also hoping to talk about the, the present, the way things are right now. Um, it might sound like a really obvious question to people of the trans community and um, people who are gender non-conforming, um, but for for the present, what are the major issues that we're facing? Because we've just had a whole conversation about marriage equality, and um, mm-hmm. it seemed like the, the trans community was used as a stick by the No campaign to beat um, sort of the queer community in general, and as a result... Most of the ill effects have been on trans people, rather than um, not not to say that it's not been a you know awful experience for all of us, but um, mm. yeah, it's um, it's been pretty pretty awful, hasn't it? Oh, look, you you know you're right on the button there. That um, you know most of the focus has been on um, trans and gender diverse people and families, and you know taking it a little further beyond the last three months since the attack on safe schools started February last year. So what's that? coming up forward towards two years, it has been pretty difficult. Now, it's difficult just after, worry, five days on from last week with the yes results, 
on the one hand, I think that I, I think it's fair to say that anything over sixty percent, from our point of view, well, in terms of yes, was going to be good. But um, you know, some people I've spoken to in the trans and closely allied communities and families are saying, well, now the sort of screams of the far right are those, if I can use the analogy of a dying animal, and they're really going to scream louder at trans. So I think there's a, a mixed feeling here that, yes, um, there's sort of a lot of support for us out there, but on the other hand, we're going to need all the support we can get to counter the right, because as you say, they're going to move on to trans, but going a little further than, than that... Um, they're probably going to start looking at attacking groups like Bayern. and of course last year the other group that copped prejudice in the safe schools debate was intersex so they're sort of you're right they've sort of you know they can't really get at gay and lesbian anymore so they're going to have to look at trans and bi so mental health therefore is a huge issue which has been an ongoing long-term problem but people have been talking about the marriage campaign for trans people and families in terms of things like a a natural disaster with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think that's going to be... I often don't like to prioritise, but I'll almost put this one now up at the top um, is sort of where we're at at the present leading into the future. Yeah, um, I was reading, um, sort of flicking through Twitter as you do, and um, Maxine Benaber-Clark, the author, um, came up with a, a pretty good idea that, like, you know, the... The survey came in $22 million under budget, I think, and that money should be sort of pumped directly back into the mental health services required by um, people who've been um, in- impacted by the, the sort of the really awful vitriol surrounding this um, this campaign. Now, a lot of the problems with um, uh, the the campaign for trans people, um, as, as uh, at least I see it, and I want to hear your thoughts on this as well, mm-hmm. is also the sort of the erasure um, by even the yes campaign, so people who we we would like to think as um, as allies at least, um, of course, a yes vote um, and the institution of same sex marriage would also be some um, be something that would um, affect trans people and their relationships. Um, but a lot of the campaigning was very assimilationist and didn't necessarily employ the voices of trans people. Do you see? A problem with the level of solidarity between um, trans people and other other queer people. Look, you, thank you for bringing this point up. It's a good point, and yes, um, but it started really with going back to that first Monday night in August after the Liberal Party meeting, and two of our you know prominent spokespeople emerge and the microphones are in their face and say things like the gay and lesbian community are incredibly disappointed and. Look, now that we're at this point, I can say, and I did actually blog about this yesterday on my own personal blog at sallygoldner.com, that I've spoken to a lot of trans and gender diverse in families, and for that matter, as someone who's bi, I think I can add in bi there, and I don't want to speak directly for intersex, I believe they, believe they might think the same, that we did feel we were erased. And when trans people have faced, I often think the biggest issue we face you know, could come down to abandonment and rejection, society, families, and then people who claim to be your mates sell you out. That's been really difficult. And it just can't happen anymore, that this double standard thing of people who use words like um, equality and inclusivity and respect and then completely ignore us. And, you know, again, similar for buy, buy raise is still a big issue. Um, that has been incredibly difficult and another layer. And... I think this is a, something that we've got to put. I do want to say, though, in fairness, there were lots of good um, allies out there um, who did write about trans people, who did stick by us, 
and you know both in positions of some prominence and also at the grassroots. I was at the LGBTI Victorian Awards, the Globe Awards a few weeks ago. A guy comes up to me and just says, look, I am a rich white gay man, he said, but he said the way we leave parts of our own communities behind isn't good enough. So I think people are on to it. And, um, you know, there is more talk. Um, I was on a panel last Thursday night for the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby's AGM, and everyone agreed that we do now have to look at intersectionality. And this brings in the other things, such as, to be honest, was the Yes campaigning very, acknowledging my own privilege, very white. So we can't just do this, I call it, supermarket delicatessen approach for human rights anymore of one issue at a time. Everyone gets to the back of, else gets to the back of the queue. We need to start looking at how we bring everyone along together because, again, it's you know trans has copped a lot, but as I say, bi people face worse outcomes in mental health and homelessness, and you know we're well aware of the issues for intersex surgery. So we're going to have to find ways where we can. I use the analogy of a power board. We plug into the same sort of themes, but have different plugs coming out to do our specific campaigns. So I don't think it's impossible, and Victoria generally does work well together, so I think we can reframe things and do that. And we're going to have to, because there is this huge feeling of disparity within the rainbow, and trans is definitely a part of that. So, And I think, I, I, I really, I am, quite frankly, think we, I urge people to have these conversations as to why we leave people, not why we leave people behind, just how we move forward better. And those listening can be part of the conversation. Sally Goldner, you're going to be speaking at Trans Day of Remembrance, Past, Present and Future. Um, everyone should turn along to, um, to this, this event that's happening today at 12.30pm. Um, and it's going to be at the Level 5 Theatre at of 121 Exhibition Street in Melbourne. Um, space is limited, um, but it is a free event, although um, they are asking for a gold coin donation to Transgender Victoria when you get there. Um, we'll be putting the link up on our website as soon as the show finishes. Um, and Sally Goldner, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Could I just give a mention also, Transgender Victoria tonight are uh, having a multi-faith Trans Day of Remembrance service at Fitzroy Library on St George's Road starting at 7 o'clock um, where we've got representatives of a range of uh, faith communities um, on hand to have a panel discussion. So there's two events and that one is um, probably, um, if there are spaces limited for the one at 12.30 down that the other and the one at 7 o'clock also there and also Y Gender are having an event at 2 o'clock at Drummond Street Services. So it's great to see the level of awareness of the day um, down here in one event, down at among Males, sold out. So I think that's at least a positive sign that people are talking about it and they're aware of it. Absolutely. We'll have all the details up on our website. Um, you are listening to Monday Breakfast. Thanks, 3CR team. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. You are listening to 3CR Breakfast here on 855 on your radio dial. And we are very lucky to have in the studio this morning uh, Debbie Brennan and 
Tess Dimos. Sorry, Tess, I did have it written down, but I just lost that for a second. And they're from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CAF. And they're here to talk about the arrival in Australia of Milo Yiannopoulos, a celebrity mouthpiece of the right, um, who's going to be here in Australia, uh, in Melbourne, on the 4th of December. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. No worries. Um, so, first of all, Tess and Debbie, if you could just remind our listeners what it is about Milo Yiannopoulos that should be protested and resisted. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that there's not more discussion about the reasons why he should be protested and resisted. I mean, you know, this guy is one of the key mouthpieces of the alt-right, and I think one of the most recent um, scandals surrounding Milo Yiannopoulos was when he went to a karaoke bar with known neo-Nazi Richard Spencer, um, who was one of the featured speakers at that Charlottesville demonstration where a woman was killed by one of the neo-Nazis. Um, and he sung a, a great adulation to the American state in which all of his supporters in the crowd did a Hull Hitler salute. And, you know, this is someone who is now getting a 25-minute um, segment on the Andrew Bolt show on Channel 10, national platform all across the country, and yet he's promoting neo-Nazis and fascist ideas. So to me, it's it's why would you not be going out and protesting him and trying to show that there's public opposition to this guy? What's also um, dangerous about that linked into what Tess was saying is that being the mouthpiece of the, the far, far right and, of course, being backed by a, a billionaire, you know, hedge fund um, person, uh, Robert Mercer, and ties with the Trump clique and so on. Um, he is he is peddling the, the, the worst, biggest bigotries uh, that the far right peddles and peddles here as well. So he's he's racist, he's misogynist, he's homophobic, he's transphobic. He's xenophobic, Islamophobic, every phobic that you can think of, the whole range. And so his visit here is actually very dangerous to all of us wherever we fit in our our own communities because being that mouthpiece, he's here to actually um, embolden the far right and the neo-Nazis here and and to recruit. So it's it's a very worrying thing, which is why everybody's got to be out there protesting him. So there's suggestions online at the moment, and I don't know how credible they are, that they suggest that Milo, he doesn't even believe half of what he says. He's a paid entertainer, a provocateur. How do you respond to those suggestions, mainly from his supporters, I would add? Well, he is an opportunist, absolutely. And so he'll say anything that... um, that is going to be attracting that attention and, of course, um, feed his own pockets because, of course, he's making lots out of this. Mm. But um, while he's an opportunist and he will say anything, it's what he says that we have to pay attention to, that we have to um, not give him that that stage to not... We have to have that counter to those arguments, whatever it is that he may come out with. So he may be, um, he may come across as sort of witty and funny mm-hmm. 
He is not funny. Again, he's very dangerous. So we have to be out there um, stopping those absolutely toxic, dangerous ideas from spreading because of the purpose of his making those statements. Yeah, I just wanted to add, like, some of the statements that he's making, it's not just, you know, something that's individually hurtful. Like, when when he went around the campuses in America, when he did his tour in America, um, he was calling for people to list to the Trump administration illegal immigrants in their region so they would be deported by the Trump administration. So this is not just an offensive remark. It's actively trying to get people um, to behave in racist ways um, and to embolden a racist government. And I think that's really important because it's the same thing, I think, that he's trying to achieve here in Australia. It's not just trying to say a few offensive comments to seem a bit outlandish and outrageous. Um, But what he's trying to do is galvanise right-wing people here in the country, in Melbourne, in Sydney, in Brisbane, etc., and provide an organising space for the far right to grow. And now in Melbourne, it's not just that his tour has been sold out, so clearly there's a lot of right-wing people in Melbourne that are going to be attending this thing, Mm -hmm. but also the um, neo-Nazi, one of the leaders of the sort of neo-Nazi groupings in Melbourne, Neil Erickson, Mm -hmm. um, he is organising a counter demonstration to our protest to defend Milo Yiannopoulos. So he clearly is getting backing um, and supporting from the known fascists here in Melbourne. Mm. And what types of, uh, I don't know whether you would know, but in terms of preparing to get out on the street and, um, you know, uh, meet this head on, what types of, what, what issues do you think Milo is going to focus on while he's here in Australia? And what kind of banners and placards could people be putting together when they get out there on the street to combat some of his ideas? Well, he's already directly bought into the marriage equality survey and he's already bought into the refugee um, issue here in Australia, um, I would say that he would be buying into anything else while he's here. So those placards should be should really be covering and addressing every single issue because he's multi-issue, mm. we've got to be multi-issue. Yeah, short and sharp and terribly offensive most of the time. And how do you respond? You know, there's an often criticism like attention is exactly what this man wants, you know, like giving it to him, he's giving him what he wants. How do you respond to that? Uh, He's no short of getting attention here in Australia without our protest happening. Like I said, he had the 25-minute segment on Channel 10 on Andrew Bolt. He had a 16-minute segment on the Studio 10 show. He's been featured um, in a whole range of different newspapers, The Age. Um, The Australian had this fawning article on him called The Importance of Being Milo, Um, and none of these major media stations have featured any oppositional views to him, like the Andrew Bolt segment didn't have a single criticism of Milo Yiannopoulos. Mm. So he has widespread coverage. He does not need us Mm. to go out there and protest him to give him more coverage. What's needed is someone to say that we oppose what he's saying. And how can people, we're running out of time, I'd love to talk more about it. How can people get involved? Where can they find out information about the rallies that are coming up? Um, Where to be, when? They should um, be following and liking the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook. Mm. Also, uh, CARF meets on the second and the fourth Tuesday of every month. Mm -hmm. So the next meeting will be before the December 4th protest. It'll be on November 28th. We meet at 6 o'clock at Trades Hall. So people um, should get involved. 
um, should be in touch with us and help us build this because we need thousands out there on the 4th of December to, to shut down his message. Well, thank you so much, Debbie Brennan. Tess Dimos, thank you so much for joining us this morning and good luck with the uh, counter-protests to this um, mouthpiece of hate. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.